Hello and welcome once again to the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast. I am your official, I'm going to just give myself a title, I'm your official host. It's official. I am the host. I am your host of the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast and I'm really, really excited to bring this episode to you. I hope you're going to enjoy it. This is episode number 33. Now, before we get into Keeper of the Greens, I have a message from my partners. Keeper of the Greens is brought to you by Australian Turf Analysis. As a greenkeeper, as a golf course superintendent, have you ever wanted the ability to see into the future of your turf's health and easily share it with stakeholders and team members? I know it would have made my life so much easier when I was super, that's for sure. Australian Turf Analysis has state-of-the-art drone technology that can see into your turf's future health with a flight over your course to show you just what is happening before it's visible to the trained eye of a greenkeeper. Now, you're probably wondering how they can show you the health of your turf. Well, their drone has a multi-spectral lens attached to it along with super-intelligent software that measures and calculates turf stress and correlates the data for you in an easy-to-read graphic map along with other formats available. When we think new technology, we often think many dollar signs. I know that's the first, probably the first thing that bounces into your head, but I can assure you that once you get a quote from John to survey your course, you will be searching for reasons why you shouldn't use this technology to help you maintain your golf course. It really is that affordable, guys. John Legg at Australian Turf Analysis is your certified and fully insured drone pilot to make sure all those paperwork bases are covered so you don't have to worry no matter where you are in Australia. Now for the good part, for every one of you greenkeepers and superintendents that are listening, for any new first-time customers, Australian Turf Analysis are offering a 10% discount on your first service if you mention this podcast, the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast, where you heard it. Head over now to AustralianTurfAnalysis.com to get in touch with John for a quote. And trust me, you want to go and do it, certainly leading into summer. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, we come once again to this wonderful discussion interview segment of the podcast, Keeper of the Greens. I keep talking about how much I'm a, I'm a fan of it. And today's interviewee, as I'm going to put it, is a superintendent of, we're going to head to a t- totally different state in Australia. And we're going to go to South Australia into Adelaide to Royal Adelaide Golf Club in itself. And I've got on the line Superintendent Nathan Bennett. G'day, Nathan. Welcome along. G'day, Steve. Thanks for having me. Mate, thank you very much for joining in. I'm really excited about this. And I do have, I've mentioned before, I've got a bit of a love affair with Royal Adelaide Golf Club, much to the dismay of my wife. She, <laughs> she, she sort of looks at me sideways when I just talk about it over and over again. It's just a wonderful landscape, something that very few people, I think, get to see sometimes. So I, um, I'm i just, you know, it's, it's one of those wonderful landscapes. And I'm so glad you wanted to join in, mate, and and let's just kick it off a little bit. Before we get into your story, let's yep. kick off with a uh, a couple of questions, Steve, Super 7 questions, mate. You ready to roll? Yeah, go for it. Yep. All right, let's go. Sunrise or sunset? Uh, well, that's a tough one, but I think sunrise. It's a tough one. I'm curious. You're the first person to say it's a tough one. What, yeah, what? I, I think the I probably because I live on course, I get to see both, and so, the sunsets sometimes are amazing here. So, 
it's a tough, it is a tough decision, but I suppose sunrise because I see them every morning out there. But um, yep. yeah, they, they can be pretty impressive, both of them, obviously. That's cool. Sunsets on a golf course. You're right. Something Greenkeeper's done, I forget to see, but we might pick into that one a little bit later on too and, and the fact that you're on course. So we'll go into that later. Yep. Now, some, some course appearance questions. Yep. Stripes, stripes or no stripes on fairways? Uh, no stripes. I was a stripe guy when I first started, only because being a bit naive, or not naive, a bit new to it. I love the look of it, but now I'm a bit more of a traditionalist and I do love no stripes. I think it just sh- particularly depending on what course you're at, but this one being a, a pretty natural course, I think no stripes just lets the course show up rather than the, uh, rather than the, the bling of the stripe. And I, I think that's a good detail, mate. I tend to agree that it's a bit about what the course offers itself yes. outside those those prepared areas yes, that absolutely. we've got from yep. the first. So I like the answer, mate. Well done. Uh, preferred look on a golf course: lean or lush? Uh, lean, uh, but but I, I do I do like when it's uh, looks healthy and and green. But I do yeah. I'm again being a bit of a traditionalist. I like the the natural feel. So probably more lean than lush. I would think so. Cool, cool, cool. Good to hear. Favourite green surface, and we're talking turf types here, bent, cooch, or something else, and I'd like you to name it if it is something else. Uh, oh, bent for me. I've only ever worked on bent grass or bent slash uh, power, but um, predominantly bent. Yeah, bent surface, I think, provides the best surface. You know, in saying that, other grasses provide amazing surfaces as well, but, yeah, I'd be uh, I'm, I'm a bent guy. You lean towards the bent. Very, very good, very good. Number five, where do you prefer to maintain a golf course? And maybe Adelaide's a bit in the middle here, but I'm interested in your background. Cool climate or warm climate? Uh, no, it'll be cool, well, a cool climate as in the southern state. So um, okay. in that, that area that can grow bent grass well during the, the summer. So that's that's my and, – and haven't been – have never worked on cooch greens or in the high tropic areas. So, yeah, cooler climates for me. I think I love the fact I do have a winter and a summer that's pretty clear cut. It isn't just a um, – not a slight change. It's a significant change between the two seasons. So, yeah, cooler climate for me. Okay, very good. Number six, favourite bunker style, St Andrews, Kingston Heath or the mighty Augusta National? Oh, Kingston Heath Sandbelt, absolutely, and 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 obviously St Andrews has a, a pretty cool little pot than the reverted pot style. But yeah, the Sandbelt for me, being Australian, I think uh, most people would lean towards those those uh, those bunkers and that that Sandbelt style definitely. Mate, you've, yep, that's definitely what we're hearing in this uh, in this discussion. It is quite common that that people are liking the Kingston Heath with that Australian flavour. You're very very right indeed. And one final one. If you could visit one golf course anywhere in the world tomorrow, which one would it be? Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, <laughs> you know, ne- ne- never been to, to Scotland. I think I'd have to go to St Andrews. You know, it's, if you get, you know, there's that one in Augusta, obviously. But um, yeah, I think St Andrews is where I'd uh, where I'd head to, the home of golf. That's that's the one. Yeah, mate. I think for me, I'm definitely in that camp, not having been there. So, mate, I. Oh, yeah, yeah, the home, the home as they call it. Yeah, mate, absolutely. thank you very much. Great quick seven, seven questions, seven responses. Always good to get a feel for, for where people sit in, in certainly in superintendents and a bit of the your experience comes through in those questions too, I think, with the answers. So, mate, thank you very much. Now, no 
Nathan, let's get stuck into your story and where you are now and what you're working, you know, towards in, in Royal Adelaide and, and how you've come to where you are. Let's let's sort of start at the beginnings of, of Nathan Bennett's career. Yep. How did you get into greenkeeping? Did you fall into it? Did you discover it? Was it a, something you really enjoyed? Where did it begin for you, mate? Tell us. I suppose it's, you know, every kid that's in year 9, 10, 11, 12 has no idea what they're going to do. They, we all think we do, but probably don't. Um, but I did work experience uh, as, a, as a year 10 student at Murray Downs in Swan Hill, uh, northern Victoria. Um, did work experience there under, actually under Richard Forsyth. He was there as uh, the, constru- the, su- the superintendent at the time. So wow. I did it for a week. Did, and I'm, I'm from a wheat farm. So I, I love the outdoors. I love... I love the, the sort of the, the growing thing and the, you know, maintaining stuff. So did work experience there and didn't necessarily enjoy it that much, but I still like the idea of it because it's an outdoor, you know, an outdoor job and you're out growing something like a wheat farmer, but you know, but you can manipulate it a bit more than a wheat farmer just has to uh, rely on the, the, the clouds above. So yeah. did it for a week work experience. And then the following year in year 11, did it again in Melbourne and Albert Park and didn't necessarily like it again. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what, what that was, but I didn't like the work experience a lot. Uh, and then a job came up uh, at Murray Downs, which is only about half an hour from where I grew up on the farm. So I um, a little a little town called Quambertook, which is only about 150 people. So I went for the job and didn't get it. Uh, I was in year 12, didn't get it, unfortunately. But then three or four months later, Richard had moved to the Metropolitan Golf Club in Melbourne. And I'm no, I'm no golfer. I wasn't a golf or a golf course buff. So he called me up towards the end of my uh, year 12, which is, must have been 94, called me up and said there was a job, an apprenticeship going here, would you be interested? And um, so I'll call you back in two weeks, you let me know what you think. So long discussions with my parents, Melbourne was about four hour, four and a half hour drive from from my place. So being off a farm, of you know, a large farm with no one around and moving to Melbourne was a big task. Anyway, I took the job, You'd, you know, be silly to look it up, I'd, you know, look past it. So took the job, moved to Melbourne as an apprentice under Richard, um, and really never looked back. I loved, from day one, I loved it. Uh, and it was funny because I didn't like work experience, but I loved the job. As soon as I got there, I felt welcomed by the staff. We had a relatively big staff. We had 14 or 15 at that point or in there somewhere. And I, I just loved it. I loved being outdoors. I, I, and I think to the sanctuary away from where I lived in Melbourne, and were, I watched to walk or ride my bike to work and go in the gates. And once I was in there, I could have been anywhere. You know, I was back on the farm almost, no one around, quiet, peaceful, rather than the rat race that Melbourne was. So that's pretty much how it started. I, I always wanted to do it, although it wasn't. Some guys are really obsessed by it, but I was. I really uh, love the idea of it, and that's sort of how it came about. Mate, I, I, that's a fascinating intro. I, I, I don't know your background in terms of where you grew up and hearing that it's rural because Swan Hill, that's just on the, that's around the border, is it? It is on the border, yep. Yeah, on the so, border. But so it's, it's Victoria? Yeah, north. yeah, the border. So it's, it's sort of, you know, it's northwest of Victoria up in the Mallee. So really dry, arid country, wheat, wheat farming country. And it's, so Swan Hill's on the border. I lived about 50 kilometres from there in a, in a large I had a twin brother, so we did everything together. We were inseparable, you know, till I, till I left. So, you know, I left as a seventeen-year-old, no license. Topped on it. You know, my parents drove me down, dropped me off, and I, I moved. You know, I was a seventeen-year-old, didn't know how to cook, clean, or you know, do laundry or anything, and then have to move to Melbourne. Didn't know a soul. Moved into a house, separated from my brother. You know, lived with him in the same room for seventeen years, and sort of cut him off. So that was that was a difficult. <laughs> we really quite a difficult time. I had a hard time 
separating work, uh, separating, you know, away from my family and friends and, and brother, really. But work, as I said, I loved work and that work was my sort of get away from being at home and being lonely in Melbourne, going to work. So I spent as much time as I could there each day and began, and made really, really lifelong, good, close, lifelong friends in those first seven or eight years of work. I'm still close with those guys. We speak, some guys will speak weekly to them and live with them and all sorts of stuff. So really great upbringing from 17 to 24, probably, you know, that really uh, integral part of your, you know, your childhood or your early adult life. That's where I spent a lot of time at Metro in those times. That's, uh, mate, that's that's unreal. I just, yeah, I, I think that to me, it, it sounds a little bit more of an old school generation type thing of, because you literally don't, you've gone on the farm and then you've gone to the big smoke on your own. That's yeah. sort of the stuff of, you know, like I said, generations long gone yeah. where you might go to boarding school or something, but for you it was starting your work yeah. life. Yeah. into the city and and did so yeah wow that's that's really fascinating i love that that background from regional regional and country life so you've gone into to metro and you've had a bit of a taste like you said of golf and 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 what's behind golf and creating a golf course and maintaining it you basically are under the wing of who is now Richard Forsyth is one of the, the the best operators in the country at Royal Melbourne yep. that we've come to know and he did he spent a number of years at Metro prior to that and you know what was it like being under someone like Richard and, and beginning your greenkeeping career what sort of things did you get not just on the technical side of greenkeeping but also that like you said that that um, work environment and being brought in as part of the group how was that at Metro in your early years? Oh, it was wonderful. You know, Richard, uh, you know, taking the greenkeeping part of it away, he's an, he's an exceptional operator and knows knows all about it and, he, and he's just, you know, he, he's very knowledgeable and he gets a job done. But what he does do is he picks the right people and he gets great staff under him that, and, he, and he's able to influence them in the correct way. So when I was there, group to come through so Richard was an exceptional leader and what that created was a great group that led themselves in the way that we we uh, encouraged each other both you know uh, positively but also the we didn't want to lead, lead each other down it was like a football team you know none of us ever yep. had sick days if someone had a sick day at work you know I reckon I was there for eight years and collectively there would have been possibly 10 sick days taken out of everyone in that time so I, I, yeah. I was there from uh, 94 to 2002 or 2003 and I, I don't think I had a sick day in that time so yeah. it was just frowned upon everyone just wanted to make sure we were helping each other out and in that time we had some great group of guys so since or in that time I was there we had obviously there was Richard and Steve Newell who's now the superintendent of Victoria David Mason who's the superintendent of Metro Lee Gannon the superintendent of the National Adam Lamb who's the superintendent of Bowen Heads all work within that group at that time so really really significant group of guys that that sort of helped each other out and prepped each other up and it was and a great a great group and Richard was the guy that was able to put that group together and he continues to do that is it Royal Melbourne now and does the same thing there's a great group of guys down there that he's uh, developed over the time he's been there and that's that's the biggest thing that I've learned from him was staff management and being able to you know getting the right staff in the right positions and getting them to encourage each other rather than he didn't rule with an iron fist. He never rose his voice. He never. Um, he was never. He was always positive and encouraging, and that's that's something that I learned a lot from him. And again, being a seventeen-year-old, going there and having someone like him uh, uh, teaching us and encouraging us, and you know, and influencing us in the right way was was amazing. That's what you know really 
made me love the job was the way we were managed and the way we were able to get on with the job and encourage each other. So that was a really important time of my life and, you know, really lucky to have been there under him but also the other guys that um, that were, were around me. So, as I said, still all really close. Mate, it's, uh, you're right, those names that you just uh, threw around that are good friends that you started your career with, they are some of the the, the, the leaders in looking after the golf courses around yeah. the best in Victoria. And we know Richard Forsyth and, and looking after and overseeing Royal Melbourne. And we talk about where it stands in, in Australian golf and world golf. And But it's, uh, yeah, really, really interesting to hear that you're part of that group. And uh, I think it's um, what a start. What I think that's a, a, an incredible way to begin your career. And it's obviously put you in good stead from there to where you then went to and, and tell us now after Metro where you what your path was to get you to Royal Adelaide. Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, there's a bit of a shift. So after about four years of being an apprentice there, there's a bit of a shift. Steve uh, Newell got the job over at Kuyonga as the superintendent. And then Lee Yannup moved up to the assistant at Metro, which enabled David Mason and I to move up as foremans at Metro. So we were there for another four years. Uh, which was awesome to have that responsibility to a club like Metro. And yeah. then uh, a job come up down at Moon Links under Lee. So Lee was the superintendent down at, he got the job down at Moon Links as a superintendent and a job come up down there as um, one of his assistants. So I went down there and finished the grow-in and um, under Lee, so as an assistant under Lee, finished the grow-in and the opening of the, of the Legends course down at Moon Links. So been lucky enough to have some tournament experience. I did uh, an Aussie Open at Metro and a world match play. And then we moved down to Moon Links and I did another two Aussie Opens down there in 03 and 05 with Lee at um, the Open course. So, yeah, so I moved down there with Lee. Again, a great leader that um, was all about getting staff. And Lee's a lead by example kind of guy. He'd be out in the trenches and whatever needed to be done, Lee was a part of it. So that was a great learning experience for him as well because it was a new superintendent's role for him. And I was really, you know, privileged to be a part of Lee's uh, learning as a superintendent and then me being able to help him out as much as I could as an assistant. So I was there for about uh, five years, I think, uh, which was a great experience having the Opens there, but also finishing the growing of the golf course and then opening that up and seeing the development of the of Moon Links with all the housing and residential that went through it and the, the building of the clubhouses and resorts, all the stuff that happened there in those times was pretty exciting. You know, whether it was Golf Australia then or the AGU were involved in that and then it sort of fell apart a bit after that. But it was pretty amazing there in that period when they um, when it was all go constructing that. So from there, um, I got a job over at uh, the Sands Torquay as the superintendent. So moved over there and must have been early 06, I think it was. Moved over there um, yeah, and spent, uh, spent about five or six years as a superintendent at the Sands, which was uh, a great, great learning experience. Wow. And that's, yeah, you, I mean, you talk, I'm loving, I've got to be honest, I'm loving the line of work you've gone because I remember I started my time as superintendent at Katoomba in 04 and I remember reading and hearing about obviously the Moona Links because it was more or less from memory built, kind of ready for the Open yeah, to go straight in into it. Built. Absolutely. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. And that was a big deal. Well, watching, um, or certainly from within the industry, watching it come and grow in and be ready. And then we held those events there and uh, the majors, Australia's majors, the Opens and, and the Men's Open and the like. And, and then uh, we hear about the Sands at Torquay. Now, that's down the southwestern side 
of Melbourne, I yep, think, yeah, it's on, from yeah, memory. Yeah, Ballerine Peninsula, the surf coast. Yeah, so that's it. the start of the surf coast highway. So on your way down there to Lawn, I think, yeah, is from memory. And it. and um, yeah. and that had Stuart Appleby involved in the early days. Yeah, it was. I don't think Stuart had much involvement at all. But yeah, yeah he, was, he was tagged along as the uh, design. That's so, it. Um, really resort style. So really. A uh, really terrible bit of land. Some was built on an old tip, and then salt marshes. Really terrible soil, but they built the golf course out of it. Lot, it's all constructed. It was there's only one or two holes that are on some some natural area, um, yep. and housing estate. So when it was built, it was quite. When I first got there, it was quite ugly. I thought because it had it was all vacant land between holes, and but now the houses are there. It's quite. It's beautiful. I think you know the. Um, the design of the course and the housing sort of frames each hole, so you don't see one hole to the next. There's no, you, you yeah. can't. It's sort of a hidden. Each hole's hidden to a certain extent, which I quite like. So um, it's right on the right on the beach, uh, or right on the sand dunes. This gets a bit, you know, it's pretty windy down there. And talking weather isn't uh, great. It's pretty windy and can be cold, really cold during winter and summers. Don't get a lot of heat down there, but great, yeah, great facility to be a part of when I got there. Um, we had just before I left, we held the very first um, knockout series. So before the sixes in WA it was it was the first thing they held. So it was a, the first. Uh, there was three rounds of eighteen holes, and then the last um, the last day was uh, six hole knockout series. So the top thirty two players went uh, uh, went in, and away they went. So that was great to be a part of the first. First event like that, uh, I'm not sure worldwide, but definitely Australia-wide. So that was in that's, 06, the start of 06. That, that's cool. That's very cool. Different style format, like you say. And yeah. that was your first appointment as super yeah, at a was, golf yeah. course. So I was there in 06. Oh, oh, so I started there sorry, in 06, and that event was sorry, in 011. Oh, um, sorry, not 06. Yeah, 011. Oh, so, um, yeah, so it was a, the first appointment as a superintendent, and that's a, you know, a lot of guys that I've had or some of the guys have moved on to super's roles and they ask, you know, how do you go? And the hardest thing I found was um, the staff management. You know, you, you learn all the stuff at school and you go through it all, but until it come, until it rests on you with staff, that's the biggest learning curve and you really can't learn it until you're in it. And that's uh, it's a pretty tough gig and I reckon still now most of my time, probably half my time goes into staff management rather than actual greenkeeping. So it was a pretty steep learning curve. Yeah, and, and no doubt being a brand new facility, you know, uh, big dollars spent building a golf course, it's not a cheap exercise. There's expectations, there's, yeah. there's different, you know, buy-in from different stakeholders. You've got Absolutely. pressure yeah. to deliver products, to deliver quality service. You've got a new team building everyone mm -hmm. and it's not in a capital city. So I can't imagine staff would be that easy to come by. They're not walking in the turnstile going, I want a job, you know, I'm here available. You gotta right. you gotta get people from potentially other areas further afield. They've got to move, they've got to yep. join in. That's that there is a lot going on yeah, for you yep. as your first time role in yeah. a brand new facility. Yeah, it was it was and you know we had about I think we had twelve or thirteen staff and because it was a it was a, a unique site and every all the bunkers were everything was man made. So all bunkers were cloth lined and and imported imported sand. It was full on but and every time we have a rain event, all the sand would wash off the off the bunker faces, and on so much manual work. And there was, a, I think, I worked out there was three hectares of sand on the golf wow. course. Wow! So <laughs> like some of the bunkers, some of the bunkers, like I think one of them, the third I worked out was about three thousand square meters, huge. So just the massive amounts of sand throughout the course was um, was, was crazy. So huge amount of work. Wow. Every time we rain event, we'd just be shoveling and shoveling sand up on the faces because it was sand. We, the water would get behind the sand and the cloth and wash it down. So 
pretty tough gig um, that way. But also, as you said, getting staff and then, you know, the smallest town, Torquay is only about, was only about 10,000 people then. So getting staff had to come from Geelong and, and other regional areas. So, but we had a pretty good crew. We, we changed over the time at the last sort of three years I was there. I was there. We had a really, really strong crew and they just, um, they all wanted to be there and work for each other and was a great group. It took a little bit at the start to um, go through some changes. A lot of guys had been involved in the growing and were just kicking about. But the next group that we got coming in were, was, a, was a great bunch of guys. That's that's sensational. Yeah, mate, what a rise. A rise in your first post as a superintendent. Great. Uh, yeah, nothing like being thrown in the deep end. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, tell us more after after the Sands. Where did you head to after there? So from the Sands uh, to Royal Adelaide. So okay, that was a and that was. Um, I wasn't looking to move from the Sands. I was really really enjoying it. I had a house down there and kids and set up in Torquay and, and really enjoyed living there. But a job came up here at, uh, at Royal and um, and one of my great mates, Steve Newell, who was a superintendent here at, uh, at Kuyonga, I used to come over and spend holidays with Steve as an apprentice and he was here for about, I reckon, uh, maybe for 14, 15 years before I got here. And I, and I spoke to him about the job and he explained the, the club and what the position they're in and, you know, all about it. So I literally got home on the Monday night and spoke to my wife about, the position here and then um, we'd come to the car the next day and drove over and had a look around did a um did a course inspection and had a good look around the place and worked out whether i want to go for the job and then um one thing led to another and i was i really feel do i really do feel f- so fortunate to be have to be offered the job you know i didn't expect i would have you know coming from a club like the sands which was relatively unknown it wasn't high in the rankings all that stuff wasn't um wasn't going in my favor but i think what was going in my favor is that is the working at Metro and under Richard and under the other guys that were involved. And, and I think too, you know, and having probably Steve up the road, they were so close with the club knew that. So I was really lucky enough to be offered the job and, um, yeah, I, I was, you know, I remember, I remember, clearly remember the day they called me up and told me I was, I got the job, I was in the car to pull over for a bit. I was a bit um, taken back by the, by what had just happened and how my life was going to change for the better because it's such an amazing place that's got so much history. And, you know, I, I felt a little bit privileged to be a part of, being a part of that history for, for some time. So, um, yeah, so really exciting time. And then, um, as I said, wasn't, didn't think I would get it, but I thought I'd throw my hat in the ring and see what happened and lucky enough to, to land here. So I packed the kids up, uh, packed the kids, moved over. Um, they supply a house in the course, which um, is, oh, it's, it's amazing. Bring, I've been here for 10 years, bringing the kids up here at the age. Then the kids were like just in primary school when we come over and um, my son's just left high school. So he spent his, all his, you know, nearly his, half his primary school and all his high school life here and just being able to, you know, grew up on a site with no neighbours on the golf course. You know, their the backyard's pretty big. It's a pretty impressive place to have a backyard. So, unfortunately, he doesn't play golf. And I know he'll kick himself one day when he grows up and realises that he lived on a, the Royal Adelaide Golf Club and uh, never played golf. So, anyway, he, um, it's, it's just an incredible place to, to work but also to live. Mate, I, um, I, I, hearing you talk about the, pro, the, the process you went through and the uh, to get the role, to to be considered for it, then to be offered the role that you you were successful, you know that's just a, a great listen to um, to hear how that went for you and and how you felt after that moment, um, which is yeah quite humbling I'm sure. And and uh, what talking about where your kids have grown up, I'm just going to throw it out there. That is knowing that you've got a house there that you're on course 
and, and you're bringing a family up and that's their backyard, I'm just going to say it, that would have to be the best backyard in Australia, wouldn't it? Yeah, oh, there's, <laughs> a, there's, a, there's a few clubs with, uh, with houses, but it is, you know, any club that has a house that's on, on the course, uh, and this one's, so this one has a frontage done to a main road, but it's surrounded by the golf course. So it's not it's not just a backyard the whole all the way around. So big yard. It is, it's a wonderful place to the kids to grow up. And then and they when I first got here, I was worried about the noise they'd make. But then yeah. after a while, we got used to it and the and the I suppose the members probably got used to my kids in the backyard on trampolines and carrying on. But yeah, it's a beautiful place to, to, to have the kids grow up and they've learned how to, you know, drive carts. And they actually my son worked for t- for two years before hot before school each for two mornings a week, comes in and helps out doing bunkers or whatever he did. And um, and my daughter works now as well on the driving range, picking up the golf ball. So it really is, it has been a wonderful place. The kids have grown up here and, and the club, the club realise that. I tell the club regularly that it's not just about work for me. It's a, a life here as well. So it's, um, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty amazing place. And it's such a, an old school place and they're really welcoming in there. And they make sure that we all feel involved and, and welcome from, from the club, which is great. Mate, it's really impressive to hear that being super at Royal Adelaide, the club, you're a part of the, the, the club. You're essentially part of the, I won't say part of the furniture, but your family. It's not just you, it's your family. You're living on course. They, they understand what you've, you've got, you know, you've had your kids working there. They are working there in some capacity. That's a really inclusive part of, of working and maintaining the space. I think the club understand what it takes and they appreciate it all yeah i think you know and and things have changed over the last 100 years for all of us and you know i think once upon a time there was you know the stigma where we're just you know staff and that was that was all it was but i think some clubs do it very well some clubs not so well but it was interesting enough i um spoke to uh tim warren who's a super at um glenelg tim sent me a photo the other day one of the guys that he deals with um with i think it's with um vermin control the guy that he spoke to sent Tim a photo, which was a plaque that his grandfather received from the Royal Adelaide Golf Club for, uh, in appreciation of a service he gave as the head greenkeeper from 1912 Whoa. to 1950, I think it was. It might have been not, yeah, in there somewhere. So he, so the, I don't know this guy's name and I don't know, I've got to try and track him down, but this plaque was a mate or it was a, was a um, sort of a stainless or a uh, steel dish, but incredible this guy had been a superintendent here for 40 years during the wars two wars he was here when mckenzie was here incredible so the, cl- the club had given him a plaque before he left in appreciation for his service so there hasn't been a lot of superintendents here there's been some big some uh, some guys have been here for long periods and you know i've always said the club i didn't want to be someone that turned up and did their bit and moved on i want to be a part of you know be, help help the club continue moving forward and continue in the right direction the club's very um strong on what they want to do and and they don't just follow trends that they're, they're very cautious and very conservative which adelaide's a very conservative state but royal adelaide's conservative they don't um they just do what they need to do for they're all the right reasons so uh, you know I, I suppose one of the examples is this is a, a captain run club and i think since i've been here there's been two captains that have had their father and their grandfather as captains. So these some of these guys are third generation captains. So they don't just turn up and jump on board and and get involved for a bit. That they the the club doesn't um, the club doesn't have voting. As in they do they allow it, but no one's committee. It's usually the committee will tap someone on the shoulder and say we think it's about time you come on board to help us out. And they just choose the correct people for the right reasons, rather than just letting people from within the club 
put their hand up and get jump on board because, you know, some people like to get on boards and committees because they get, you know, sick of a bunker or they want to remove some trees. But this club here selects the people to help run the club and put it in the right direction. And I think it's really important having that uh, that link to the past because I'm assuming a lot of these guys that have been second or third generation captain don't want to stuff it up because their father and their grandfather didn't. So they don't want to be a part of that situation. So they all make sure that they, it isn't just about now, it's for the future as well. So that's why I think it's a successful club and it continues to be the, the forefront and they don't, um, they don't follow trends and try and beat, it, beat other clubs. They just want to be the best they can be and keep heading in the right direction. Mate, it's um, really fascinating to hear that the, the way that the club is, works, I suppose, internally, because like you mentioned, some plenty of clubs, I'll, I'll go out, I can go out there and say, because I've worked on some of them as well. I think we all probably have, but plenty of clubs, their, their committee members, board members uh, try to get into some form of power, ultimately uh, to be seen for the wrong reasons. Um, yeah. that, that's just, it, it becomes a bit of that for them. Um, but the way that you talk about Adelaide, and I'm sure that there's plenty of the, the best clubs in the country that operate maybe in a similar way, I, I certainly don't know, but it becomes legacy. Royal Adelaide, as you mentioned, is steeped in history. Yeah. There's this uh, kind of a lineage of family and generations that 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 are helping look after and put the path down for the future of a place like Royal Adelaide. And part of you've touched on a couple of times and with the crew uh, under Richard and with yourself, part of the team at Metro, you talked about people and selecting the right people. And now here you are in Adelaide and Royal Adelaide talking about how the club does a similar kind of thing yeah. where it's, it's selecting the right people that are going to continue the, the, the way of thinking, I think is probably how it comes across to me is, and, I part of my <laughs> I'm going to just keep saying it. Part of my love affair with Royal Adelaide is the landscape. It's that fit. You, you walk onto the course there at Royal Adelaide, and there's a few courses that do it in the country. Royal Melbourne's another one. As we, if you've been there, you probably can appreciate for some people. But you walk onto the course, and I was fortunate with you a couple of years ago. I went to visit. You said, Steve, you know, let's let's go and have a look around. I'll show you what it is. Immediately, you get a sense of history immediately you've got this feeling that there's something intangible here that that is very very important and should be treasured and and sort of maintained in this this fashion however they've got to this point yeah. royal adelaide oozes that and I, yeah, I absolutely sometimes i don't know how to describe it but but i i You've you've kind of given us an insight into how that's come to be, and yeah. I, I really find that quite interesting. and And maybe it leads us to talking a little bit about Royal Adelaide's history. You touched on Mackenzie and and that that former superintendent. It's been forty years or something looking yep. after the golf, golf yeah, course yep. during that time. That for for a lot of people that may not realise, you know, there's there's a lot of big names that have been involved in the architecture side of Royal Adelaide, and you've hosted yep. some incredible events over the. The, the over a century that it's existed as a club. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what you, you know, in, you're maintaining this and it's aged and it's matured and it's, you know, become a part of Australian golf history in a massive sense. Tell us a bit yeah, about absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know, and, and the club, because the club formed in uh, uh, 1892 and we just played, they used to play golf in the parklands around the city. So they used to just get a club and they just, and, you know, as in a golf club formed and they would play in, sort of makeshift holes around the city and then eventually 
they played somewhere down towards Glenelg and some parklands down there, and then they ended up buying this land. So the train line was here before the golf club. So they caught a steam train out because they'd heard the land was you know available and they heard that it was good site. So they caught the steam train out through the golf course, hopped off and walked over it and saw the, the sand dunes and the and all the, the surrounding land. So they got together, formed a club, all donated money and put money into this little you know membership sort of type scenario. And they um, were able they were able to purchase the land and it sort of flowed from there. So the guys that first bought it, they, they went and did some design work. So Rymel um, was one of them. Uh, there's been some guys that have been involved in here and at Kuyonga. So there's been some guys that did some work. And there's been a lot of designs over the years of people that have come and had a little bit of a go early on. So they did the works and then Mackenzie turned up in uh, 26 when he did all the other work around the country. So he was here. Um, they paid him 250 uh, pound to come and do uh, do the work here, and he put a design together. Not all of it was used; only only some of the holes were used from his design. And, and silly enough, they, they had this beautiful bit of land, but this beautiful um, sand dune in the middle of it, and they didn't they skirted around the sand dune. So Mackenzie brought that into play. So the holes, probably the most significant holes that people talk about, which is the um, the third hole, short par four, two hundred and you know two hundred and sixty odd meters, no bunkers, blind tee shot. Ridge running in front of the green. He built that one, and he built the eleventh, which is a uh, the crater hole, which you come over a crest, and the and the greens tucked into a sand dune, that's surrounded by, you know, by the big by the big sand dune, an impressive looking hole. So he did some of the better holes that that are out there. So, um, so he had involvement, and then then it sort of sat for a long time as it was. Um, it's funny enough, we found some nineteen thirty two footage of the Australian Open here, and it's an incredible bit of footage, but there's not a tree in sight. The place is just a sand dune it's open very very linksy and then after that i think they, they did planting days and they planted all these pines through the golf course and the, and the club is really now one of the, the strong landscapes are the pines through there and there's two types there's a halopensis which is a, a weed variety and the other ones a pinus panasta and we've shaped those and had arborists in over the last 20 years climbing and shaping and trimming and they look amazing some of them are really feature trees so and some of the members get irate when we cut one down or one falls over and they get upset about it. They think we need to replant them. And you explain that back in the day, there wasn't a, there wasn't a tree here. And they sort of say, oh, but yeah, but that was designed to have trees. Said, no, it wasn't. It, it lasted 30, 30 years before someone decided to put, put trees throughout the golf course. So we've started to really work strongly on that. And that's been happening for the last sort of 15 years about removing trees that, that if they fall, we don't replace them and removing trees that don't are undesirable or that are in the way. So, and that's through design as well. So we've had Peter Thompson turn up. He was here in the sort of 80s and 90s and put his put his mark on the on the course. And Peter's done some good work and, um, you know, God rest uh, Peter, but some of the work we did here was pretty ordinary. So that's a lot of that's been removed now. We've got Renaissance at Tom Doak. He's our designer. He's been here for about seven years. Wow. Um, so he's been here for that long and done some work. Before him, we had Mike Clayton come do some work. Um, Mike and his team did uh, one hole. It didn't. It was polarising. Membership didn't um, didn't take to it. I think the golfing public and the wider community didn't uh, didn't see it. Did, didn't see what they were trying to achieve. So they stopped that relationship and went to Tom Dope. And Tom came out and. Try to rectify that hole as much as it, much as possible. Um, still a little bit polarising, but I think it's just because it's got the it's got a, a bit of a 
what the other stuff they've done. People turn up here and don't know what Renaissance done. And I think Renaissance love the fact they do work here and no one sees it. It gets gets lost into in the rest of the course, which is exactly what they want. They're not here to rebuild it. They're here to fix the weaker parts and the weaker parts they are fixing. So we keep picking parts that aren't quite up to scratch and they keep working on those little bits. And, you know, some of them are shrinking bunkers or widening fairways or whatever it is. So we've, we've done a lot of change in the time I've been here. Just before I started, they put a new irrigation system in. And since then, we've gained about four hectares of fairway. So just by joining fairways, widening fairways, which has been uh, – uh, it presents the course much, much better. feels like a, like a much more link-style golf course. Some people get a bit funny about it because they think they're making it too easy. But I think you look at t- Tom Doug's philosophy is short grass can be one of the biggest hazards out there in golf. You know, creating shortcut grass doesn't mean it becomes easy. It just means you open your, open your shoulders and go for it and get yourself in a whole lot more trouble. <laughs> but what we do do also is we grow our rough long. So our, our course really is a seasonal course. So depending on whether you come here in the middle of winter or the middle of summer or whatever it is, it's completely different. So during that sort of autumn period, the rough's, it's a pretty bony and there's nothing out there and you can hit your ball where it's pretty wide. You'd find it, you hit the ball again. You come here at the end of winter, start of spring and you, and all towards the middle of spring and the grass is knee high. The rough, we just cut the edge of the edge of the fairway. So we're just on the edges of it, probably the first two or three metres. And then we let the rough grow and it's brutal, uh, much to the membership's disgust. But as soon as it hits warm weather, probably October and it burns off, the contrast is really, really strong. And we have that wispy, grass that blows in the breeze we have that link style and the members love it but they sometimes they just have a hard time grasping that you can't have long dry grass without having at some point long green grass so anyway <laughs> it's um it works really well the members do uh, now it's been happy that i haven't cut the rough for 10 years i keep asking me every year oh when are you going to cut the rough and i said well i haven't cut it for 10 years so i'm not sure i'm going to start now but we just let it go and the, and the membership do love it now they appreciate what we're trying to achieve and it just creates a championship style golf course without being without being tricked up it's you know when we have we've had two women's opens here in the time i've been here and we present the course exactly the same for the women's tournament as we do for members play on Saturday. There's no more rough cut or shortened or lengthened or we don't do anything different other than uh, cut it more often, the turf surfaces, to, pre- to prepare a better surface for TV. But other than that, the course is prepared the same for a tournament as it would be for members play. So I'm not sure I got into that topic. Mate, but um, that, yes. That's really – mate, I, I'll, I'll jump – I'll give you a second to have a breath. <laughs> that's uh, There's a whole lot – going on there and it tells us a lot about royal adelaide and i'll I'll probably dive into a couple of parts with you here and and i'll work in reverse this could be a little bit a bit like a reverse seinfeld episode in a moment but uh, (laughs) um i'll start off with that rough because when i was there and you showed me uh the course and how it works and how it functions and the landscape and i think this is part of for me what makes it in my opinion i claim royal adelaide when i talk to people as the, the best version of an Australian golf course we have and the most iconic version of one because you mentioned the distinct seasons. We talk about, you know, it's sandy landscape, which, the, which then leads to those changes as you get the rain in different times. And there's not a lot of rain in South Australia and Adelaide, but when you get it, it's there in the temperatures and you get a bit of growth, then it burns off. And we have this big cycle and yep. they're distinct seasons like you mentioned and you have all the different temperatures and that heat and that dry through summertime do you i don't know if you get frost maybe it's you don't quite there yeah, being do. close we to the water do. but 
Yeah. There you go. I mean, because you get Not that many. cold, clear sky winter yeah. um, where everything just really crisps out and then and those freezing-ish night temperatures. Yeah. And I, I suppose one of the things that I wanted to talk about was you showed me that you've got hard edge irrigation yeah. on your fairways. And, and what that is for people who aren't sure, for players that don't know what that is at golfers, is where the irrigation to water the turf surfaces on your fairways are on the edges pointing in which means yep. your rough doesn't get any water assistance or irrigation assistance other than from the natural climate variations yep. in your rough. So you that's a really unique thing that I don't know too many courses that want that or do that. To say, you, you save a lot on water, no doubt. You save a lot on haven't mowed. I've never heard anyone say they haven't mown the rough for 10 years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I, I think that's an interesting feature. Yeah. And the changes, there's no changes to tournament prep. It is what it is. And you've held recently a number of the major women's events. This is really allowing for the climate of a local area to deliver in part the Royal Adelaide product, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah it is. And the, the system that was put in... Um, was put in about twelve years ago, and we uh, and we continue. We we spend a lot of time and effort on our irrig- irrigation system because it's a significant, um, you know, outlay. But also, we have an irrigation technician, and he's constantly working on. He does little things, you know, always adjusting sprinklers, and de- and depending on the top, the season too. You know, we get a lot of southwesterlies in um, in that sort of October November. So he'll he'll adjust sprinklers to accordingly because we tend to get dry spots and edges where. The sprinklers won't reach because of the wind, and then when that stops, then he then he readjusts them again. So, as you said before, we water nothing off the playing surface. So if it's watered, it gets cut. Other than that, we don't. Um, and as in cut short, we don't. We rough cut the very edge of the fairway um, just to make sure that you know you don't want to miss the fairway by two foot and land in yeah. a foot long grass. But we cut the very edges. But if it's watered, it's cut short. So. It's very traditional. We don't – all our mowers, there's only two heights, well, probably or three heights. There's Green's mower height, which is currently at three mil, and then we have T's, T surrounds, Green surrounds, fairways, everything at nine mil. Everything's the same, and then we have rough. So we don't, with the mowers, doesn't matter what mower goes out where, it can cut surrounds or T's if it can fit, whatever it is. We don't have different heights. We don't have different step cuts and different variations. It's just Green's wow. height and the rest of it. So <laughs> – that way, it's really, really simple. It's and it's really basic. And and us, as we said at the very start of the show, that I want to present the course that shows the course off, not what we do. You know, I don't want to have stripes. I don't want to have. I don't want to prepare that that people can see our stripes or different variations. I want to show the course off proper. So during the two women's opens, that's what we did, and to the point where we. It took extra effort, but we cut fairways all one direction for the TV. Yep. So there was yep. no striping. We we started from the green and worked towards the T. We had to get extra mo- we got six moles in to do it to try and beat the field around. But that's the only way that's the way we wanted to show the course off rather than having it, you know, with stripes. And I and I, I loved stripes, as I said, when I first started. Metro when we had the tournaments there was very striped up and it was amazing. But I think this place here lends itself to beat just presenting the golf course rather than turf preparation so the the, the part circle sprinklers allow us to have just water on this playing surface and off that is whatever grows and a lot of it is rubbish there's a lot of native stuff out there but a lot of it is rubbish you walk through in the end of spring and the members get irate because their socks get full of barley grass and wild oat seeds <laughs> and all sorts of stuff and but then the stiper takes off and the wallaby grass and all the other bits and pieces but it, then it starts to um you know dry out and thin out and you can find your ball and it's tough shock you're hitting out of dry wispy grass but you can find it a bit easier 
and and that's all part of like their 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 native species of 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 sort of prairie I say prairie style loosely, but but grasses you find yep. out on plains and that sort of thing. Absolutely. And that's that's the landscape of Royal Adelaide outside yep. those playing surfaces, in amongst those dunes as they move up Absolutely. and down in between yep. the, the fairways and the whole corridors. And it's again a unique part of what makes Royal Adelaide and and certainly there's others along in in Adelaide as well. But Royal Adelaide, Royal Adelaide, that's the experience yep. as a golfer that you get when you if you have an opportunity to play there and the members do regularly. I think it's fantastic. Yep. One of the other things that I wanted to to mention on and you talked about different design styles and the architects and and early on we had Kagi Rymel and I think Gardner was another one that yep. was involved in the early time. Uh, the very early years, Dan Suda was brought in for an idea uh, of laying the golf course out in the Seaton side as well. I think yep. you showed me that or is in the clubhouse, yeah, plan, the clubhouse of Suda's yeah. plan yep. which is a lot of the holes are similar to that as well. Um, over the years, Thompson, Mike Clayton, and some of the, those decisions that the club at the time and the committee decide to go down engaging those people and and it's it's seen as the right decision at the time but in time it's easy Everyone says hindsight's twenty twenty, and oh, and it's not always something that works for clubs, but it's still the path to get to where you are today. You may not have got to Renaissance if those previous steps were taken, absolutely, uh, yep. or weren't taken. So I think having Renaissance and the clubs obviously happy with what they're doing, being part of, and, and enhancing and bringing out some of those features of the of the golf course, and sort of really even and highlighting them without looking like they're doing the work and yeah i think you showed me i think uh, it wasn't the 11th there was another hole out the back there they were doing work on short of the the green i think as well when i was there a couple of years ago but it's um but it really is one of those things in the crater hole what a what a fantastic goal is it the seventh the short par three Oh, the seventh with, short part three. Oh, yes, with, that's with all, all the bunkers around it. With yes, all the bunkers it. around it, that's yeah. another iconic. And, and watching Absolutely. watching the women play that in tournament, I mean, <laughs> there's yeah. some, there's, yep. there's some incredible television spaces to to be encapsulated by watching and in being enthralled by watching on television. From a, a superintendent's perspective, mate, what is somewhere that that you really think that you, you live on course? You've been there a long time. Is there somewhere that you just go? I this is the spot for me. This is the early morning spot when it's just still with a dew over the course or whatever it might be. Is there somewhere on course you just pinch yourself and go? And I've had a few supers say that they've got one. Yeah, I'm yeah, curious yeah. to hear yeah. what Royal Adelaide is for you, mate. Tell us. And and as a player, can you can you see that or experience that on your way around as well? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it's the the, the highest point, which is there's a rotunda, which is a um, a building built on the top of the sand dune at the highest point, out. It's in the junction between, it's near the end of the sixth green, halfway between the seventh tee and seventh green. On the other side of the rotunda is the 11th, the crater hole, and it's just near the eighth tee. So from that spot, you can see probably you see six, seven, eight, 11, and 12, all from one vantage point. And that's wow. why the rotunda was put there. It's, it's a mid, midway point where golfers can come. There's a toilet there and drink station. There's actually a little um, bar area under underneath it. So it's, it's a wonderful spot. So I often... Um, I'm, on an early morning, we have an Instagram page and there's a lot of our footage comes from that spot, which is you get up there, the sun comes up and you can see almost the whole of the front nine and some of the back nine holes. And it's just, it, it really does show off the the flat links feel of the golf course and then it sweeps up onto the sand dune. So, you know, it's funny, living here 
I've spent quite a few New Year's Eves up on that. You can see all the fireworks <laughs> from the city. It's a be- and people wouldn't members don't see it because they, a lot of people play golf and they just look for the golf ball and hit the golf ball. But when they yep. go out for a walk and actually stop and look around, it's a, it's, a, it's an incredible spot right there. So a lot of the, a lot of the staff you'll often see on a good morning. I love when I see some of the staff park them. I'll get up and I'll get off and get their phone out and get a, a either a video or a photo. Um, it just shows that they're proud of where they work and they love love being here as well. So yeah, definitely that's a spot that's. Um, that's a spot that I take advantage of. And I think it's funny that there's footage. We got some black and white photos in the hallway or the breezeway of the clubhouse. And some of those photos were taken back in, I think one of them might've been 1906 or 1907. And uh, there's a little rotunda. It's a little hexagon shaped building that was put on top of that sand dune back then. And the rotunda that's built now is a hexagon shaped building. They've tried to replicate what was built back in the early turn of the century. So um, a bit more grand than what the old one was, but um, yeah, again, trying to trying to try to keep with what was here. So that you know, those holes haven't changed, and they just have, they've been where they are. So they've tried to in, uh, in keeping what's uh, what was around the place. So that's a pretty impressive little spot up there when you get to that point and you can see all the way around. It's, you see the train uh, coming through. So you know we haven't probably touched much on that, but when you're up there, you can see <laughs> the train pretty much the whole length go all the way through the golf course. Mate, it's uh, given me goosebumps when you showed me around. Just thinking about it now, when you showed me a couple of years ago that location, and I love it. You you like to to see and hear the team members be proud of of what they're part of, be proud of what they're preparing, and the club as well. And I, I, the reason I like to bring this this little part out is you you mentioned it just then. Not all golfers take a moment to stop and open their eyes and lift their head up and go. Look at where we are. Yeah. Look at what these golf courses are preserving. Yep. Look at what the local landscape is that we're routing through and we're enjoying four or five hours playing golf in. This has been here for a long time. It's it's being preserved and, and protected in pockets of the, 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 the remnant natural landscape that we're able to experience every time we play golf. I, I think more golfers need to do that to appreciate even more still what golf clubs and golf courses are harbouring and what they're they're protecting within their space. And I, I think it's most important that, that more people do that. I really like to hear that side of it, mate, especially around that rotunda. Yeah. One of the, the things we haven't touched on, and you're right, Nathan, is the train. <laughs> it is such a quirky, and for anyone that doesn't know, Royal Adelaide, has a train line running straight through the middle of the golf course with no fences, with and as train carriage comes on on cue, I think it's every half an hour or something. Mate, it's it's a really interesting quirk of Royal Adelaide and something I was really fascinated to see how it's that the two things work together, golf course and a train. And it, yeah. and it, it's it's there are some of the best golf courses in the world have a, a an interesting quirk that yep. is their very own thing. And for you guys, it's this train line. And you touched early on that the site was accessible with a steam train. And I know that there was a small station built there at one point uh, near the clubhouse as well, yep. I believe. Yeah. What from a, I'm just from a superintendent's perspective. The first thing I'm going to say is safety, safety, safety. Yes. What's, the, what's the scenario there? And tell us how how the club and and you guys on course function with a train running yeah, through. It, it's a really interesting one because we, we had a near incident a little while ago where uh, one of the bar staff got too close and that 
got too close to the train. As the train went around, the, it was on a bend. As it goes around the corner, it clipped the front of the cart and pulled the front wheel off the off the golf Whoa. cart. So you can imagine that stood up a little bit of uh, uh, investigations and discussions. But it, it is a it's a handshake agreement that the club have with the rail authority that. The train line goes through. Um, there's no fencing. The only thing we have, so at each, there's one, two, three, four, there's five crossings. Uh, the golfers cross two of them. And all that, all it is is an asphalt crossing that has a yellow line. And the rule is you stop at the yellow line and look either way and there's no train you go across. But, but so the train drivers know about it. They're obviously, they get a bit jumpy because some members, you know, they're old and they're just t- talking away and they get used to it a little bit because it goes through every 15 minutes. So it goes one yeah. way and then 15 minutes later it goes the other way so it goes pretty regularly it's a two little carriages it does about 50 to 60 k's an hour as it goes through so it can get on you pretty quick um for my staff it really is you know we talk about it regularly and and often we do um continual updates on our you know uh inductions and sops and that sort of stuff so we're always making sure we're aware of it because we are at most risk with machines coming to it all the time but it seems like we're pretty good with it. It's the golfers that just get a bit blase about it. Some of those members are, you know, some of them are elderly and they just wander along. And so anyway, there's been no, there's been no uh, injuries as far as I know. There's been some loss of golf bags and golf buggies. When the, <laughs> you know, people put the old, now they've got those electric ones or the motorized ones and it goes on and stops on the train line. All of a sudden train comes through and takes the bag out. So that's happened a few times. Um, but it is such a unique thing. And, you know, there's, there's, sto- there's been stories and whether this is, folklore there's a story where one many many years ago a guy hit a golf ball on and hit the golf ball for second that landed um on the train so they when the train pulled up at the crossing because that sorry at the station which used to be at the clubhouse they threw the ball out onto the green onto the second (laughs) green so there's all these sort of stories but so the the clubhouse was built where it was because that's where a train station was there's a little station there and that was a part of the pro shop so We've got black and white fo- footage in the clubhouse from 1930 where there's a steam train pulled up and you can see all the pedestrians getting off, all the golfers. And then it's um and then it and the next footage from a plane, you can see where the planes uh, the, the trains um taking off and there'll be another steam coming out of it. So and I think in nineteen oh six on the opening day, the the there's a footage of a train pulled up and it's like big wooden carriages where all the spectators are getting off. There's hundreds of them getting off and flowing out of the golf course watching the, the first round of golf being played here. So it's held, it's, it's the, the train line is really significant. And we think the train authority think we hate it, but we, you know, we love it because it's a, it's unique. And a lot of people turn up here and play golf and you see them all getting photos, all of them out getting photos as the train goes through. And I still pinch myself every time I set scoot through, I've got some great footage of, you know, on our Instagram posts of the train coming through and amongst the guys doing work. It's really, it's really unique. And it's, um, as you said before, it's quite quirky. We have a lot of quirky stuff here at the course with quirky holes and the way they, you know, you got to hit the fairway will stop before you hit into a green or um, just the way some of the holes are built. And I think that sometimes leads to, you know, great golf courses too, not just being a cookie cutter like some of them are. This is a bit unique and that's what puts it different to the rest of the courses around, I think. I agree 100%. And, and all those little quirks add up to a Royal Adelaide, in my opinion, and along with, and I talk about the landscape because I think that's just such a key component to an experience at Royal Adelaide. But that train was one of the first things I was most interested to see how it functioned as part of the club. I didn't know it was still live when I, when I got there with you. And all yeah. of a sudden you go, yep, there's the train. And it literally go, and <laughs> I couldn't stop taking photos or videos of it. It, it fascinated me beyond beyond end. I, I just couldn't. And and the other thing was, you you talked about sort of that um, something that the people really love to see as the, as it goes past. I think you 
people would think it puts you off golf or whatever. I think it becomes normal at yep. Royal Adelaide. And if you took away, God forbid, and I say that with true passion, God forbid the day may or may not, hopefully it never does come, where there is no train, yep. I, I shudder at the thought of a Royal Adelaide without a train. Because exactly it's right. not it's not just the track; it's the fact that it's it's a working lo- train line. Absolutely, yep. Uh, and considering that it goes when it goes past the clubhouse, it actually it's about seven meters from the clubhouse. So <laughs> it, you fit between the pro shop and the train line, that it's, which is about the part of the pro shop is probably you know fifty meters long. You can fit a golf cart between the the, the bollard and the and the um, the train line. That's how close it is. So it's not as if yeah. it's, you know it just goes through in a, in a random spot. It's right beside the clubhouse. So as you, as you said, a lot of people turn up just thinking it's a train line, all of a sudden get a bit of a shock that it's actually operable. There's a train going up and down it <laughs> regularly and spectate. And, it's, and it, when you hop on it, I've done it many times going through, it's, it looks, the golf course looks completely different because you're elevated and you see yep. it from a different perspective. And it's quite, you know, it's peaceful. You drive through there and there's golf was out playing golf and there's a bit of landscape. Whereas mainly on metro trains, it's just suburbia, houses upon houses. But all of a sudden you get in this big open space that's beautiful and it's, it's quite a unique experience for the, for the commuters, let alone the golfers. It's uh, it's it's magic, mate. Oh, I'm just I'm just a huge fan. <laughs> just yeah, I can t- I can see it over and over and over. I love it. I love it. Tell us a little bit about some of the details on course. What grass types you use, and what that experience is for a golfer. Are they couches? I, I believe you mentioned that they're bent grass. What what do you have for the golfers to play golf on? So the grass tops we have, so our greens are bent grass and they're a mixture of uh, four different varieties. So they're a G2, Pencross, Highland and Seaside. Um, wow. They were selected uh, years ago to create that old school feel. So we have that really mottled look throughout the green. So rather than just being a really clean, um, sterile feel, they're pretty old school. So um, amongst that is power as well. So don't think we don't have any power. We have plenty of power in our greens. But um, so that, that's the surface for the for the um for our greens, um, our fairways are cooch. So pretty much whatever grows. So they call it Summerton cooch, which is a cooch that grew down in the, the, the sort of low uh, plains in Adelaide many, many years ago. But there, it's a mixture of, you know, because you can't buy that stuff. So a lot of it's, you know, the Santa Rata mixed all through it. And there's different variations of all different types of grasses. So some of the commons are, are amazing. Some of them are pretty pretty ordinary at certain times of the year and some of them come out of dormancy and go in dormancy quicker and slower but it varies so um this time of year the surfaces are great and then by about april they start to slow down by the time we get to the middle of winter they can be a bit patchy some of them you know some of them fall apart a bit in winter and then um some of them not so bad but then once it warms up in september then they're away again so um it's pretty much just the two varieties so cooch on all the shortcut surfaces except for the greens and then rough is just whatever grows out there so Right, um, so yeah, yeah, that that's uh, again gets back to my fa- because we often hear. I've spoken to superintendents, and we often hear golf clubs, you know, be very proud that they've got a particular type of variety of grass or a on their fairways or on their greens. Yours sounds like it's 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 leading to that more natural style yep. of a look, not necessarily. Yep, yeah, yeah, and. Uh, is that that's is that part of the the goal and and part of the the attributes of, of Royal Adelaide? I think so. I think you know, although ter- maintaining turf these days is getting harder and harder because there's an expectation of purity and expectation of pure playing services all year round and firmness all year round. But so we still have that to a certain extent. But the club understands that. Um, 
you know, we are a traditional club and, and we, we've we got what we've got and let's just work out the best way of maintaining it. So the issue we're going to have moving forward is of those four varieties in our greens, I think you can only get one of them now, I think. Yeah. That, might, that might be Seaside. Highland, you can't get. G2, I think, is gone. And Pencrush, it might be, it might be a different variety. Yeah. So yeah. we're going to have to start looking at something else if we need to replace greens. So... We're going to look at um, possibly still doing a, a mix, though. I think we'll always go with a mix because it just, as I said before, gives that really mottled. And the new new variety varieties are fantastic, but they're a bit, as I said before, maybe a bit sterile and a bit um, bit too new looking. Whereas a club yep. wants to stick with that old school feel. So that's you know, and it is a really, um, and they would put a lot of thought into that. They're not just you know. Um, knee-jerk reaction that they want to put a lot of and we've done some research we've got a one of our chipping greens has got four varieties on the on there so that in four or five years time if we ever build a green we can choose one that we could possibly over sow into other ones so and we may like start looking at doing that if we build one green we might have to over sow all the greens with the new variety so that at least they've all got a similar feel to them so um, but as I said, the, the fairways are patchy we you know we don't we've we've line planted to two halves of fairways the first and the sixth because they were pretty poor during the winter we did that just to try and improve some of the commons but other than that it's just whatever grows and most of the members wouldn't know whether they're playing off cooch or pole or whatever it was as long as it looks good and hit the ball hits off it they're happy with that so it's just about preparing the surface um, as best we can and working out ways to be able to prepare, prepare it best you know a lot of yeah. people get caught up in different varieties and what's best for your course but i think just choose the variety and work out the best way to maintain it is probably the best philosophy. I, I love that mentality, mate. I think it's it sounds also quite unique, but from from a, a traveller now of golf courses and experiencing a lot of the, the what Australia has to offer in different corners of the country, that mentality seems to be something that would probably work best for trying to maintain your golf course within the climate yep. um, and, and the local area. And that leads me to asking you a little bit about how Adelaide, Royal Adelaide is to maintain in Adelaide, in South Australia, the driest state of our country. How is it different there to what you know in Victoria, to what we, we know about the East Coast where we get higher amounts of rainfall and the like? What do, you, what do you feel that Royal Adelaide does a bit different to the East Coast stuff? Oh, I think we're able to. Um, well, it's a bit difficult because... People would automatically assume that for us we can get greens like concrete, which we do get them pretty hard, but people would think, oh, you can get them like concrete because it's so hot and dry. But the issue with being so hot and dry is we have to keep some moisture into the plant to get them to survive. So, you know, when we have a 40-degree day, our 40-degree day over here can start at half past 8 in the morning and go till half past 9 at night. <laughs> wow. It's hot all day. So it gets, once it gets hot, it stays hot. So the grass really has a hard time. And we've had some sensors in the ground where moisture sensors, and they'll get some of the, you know, ground temperatures of 35 degrees, and that, that's 100 mil down. They, the ground gets really hot. So we have to maintain that sort of moisture in the plant to be, and in the soil profile to get them to survive. So we tend to get greens harder in winter than we do in summer because during winter we can back the water off. Obviously, we don't water during winter, and they become really, really dry and hard. But during winter uh, – sorry, during summer, they get a bit softer. Um, but we it is a great climate to grow grass because we can really manipulate what we're going to do. So we have – a huge supply of water for us so we have a um we have four bores that we can pull from but on top of that we have an asr system so we collect storm water we collect and inject our storm water down back into our boards so we can put anywhere up to 200 megalitres back down into the ground and pull that out plus what's our allocation so we have a really great 
uh, water source and uh, water, uh, water uh, quantity. So we're at, if it's really hot and dry, we're able to really manipulate what we can do with the water rather than, you know, in the in the I suppose the eastern sides and particularly southeastern in Victoria, you tend to get rain all you know raining periods during summer which is a great help but that what that does is it you know greens everything up too much or it greens the roughs up wherever it is because we can really manipulate where we want the water to go how much we want to put out and, and keep it under control so it does allow us to have really strong warm season growth and and that our season is pretty long it, our sort of our summer season probably goes from september through to april so we get a long period um, of growth from our warm season so we have a smaller smaller window of dormancy um, but yeah, so the, the warmer weather really is, it can really dry stuff out and we can, you know, really control some of that, um, that water because we've got plenty of it and we can control it where it needs to go and, uh, pre prepare the course and show the course off as you keep, you know, you said before about being a, a hot, arid place from within the clubhouse looking out, looks amazing having this really dry, harsh conditions outside, but ribbons of fairway and green and tees that all join together throughout the sand dunes and throughout the mounding that you can get snippets of it from the clubhouse and it has that real um, cooling effect or it feels like it's a bit bit more cool out there than on a 42-degree day and you're still seeing ribbons of green grass through the dry rough and through the dry sand dunes. is uh, pretty unique. Very much so, mate. It's... Um... I uh, I just find that all very, very interesting in how you guys go about maintaining and presenting a Royal Adelaide. And you talked about something really unique there that I think a lot of people may not understand and, and I don't know a great deal about it. You said, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, you s collect stormwater and then effectively store slash replenish a groundwater reserve by pumping it down yep. in the ground. Yep. And then you can then redraw through your bores from that underground. Is that a natural underground storage? Yeah, so it's a huge, um, a huge aquifer down there, and artesian bores we have. And they're about 150 metres down, so they're a long way down. Um, we pull, uh, I think our four bores can pull out somewhere in the vicinity of about 60 litres a second, can pump out of those four bores into our tanks. And we push water. So when we have a rain event, so if we had a 10 millimetre rain event now, we would probably get, maybe 10 meg out of that rain event. So it's a huge wow. catchment, a huge catchment between here almost to the city comes that's all the way through. And it just happened to have a, a stormwater pipe. It's about a three foot diameter pipe go through the back of the course. What? And when we, and we they tapped into that and that, so when that goes past, we have two pumps. So the water goes down that pipe and we, they've got a cut out of that pipe, which drops into a pit. And out of that pit, we can pull out 250 litres a second comes out of that pit into our wetlands. The wetlands then feed their way through and cleans the water. And then by the time it gets around to the, the last pump, we pump that water back down into the ground. And it just goes back down the same tube that the water that the bores are in. Put, just pushes back down and get and it just forced into the ground and push in theory, goes out into a balloon in the ground. And then we just pull it back out again when we need it. So during the during the summer months. So we're we're limited to a maximum of 200 meg per year to put down. So we can have that plus whatever our allocation is from out of the artesian bore. So as I said, we would never, we couldn't, we couldn't use the water we have. We wouldn't, we'd have to be watering all winter as well, which we, you know, obviously don't. Which, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, and it was expensive exercise. We've got one, Grange have one, Glenelg have one, uh, Westlakes have got one attached to the council. There's a lot of councils in Adelaide that have got them, well, not lots of them, but there's a fair few of them around. So it just means that, you know, we don't have a lot of rain. I think our average rainfall a year is 400 millimetres. So it's not right. a lot of rain. So we And we get that during winter and during summer, it's 
obviously very dry. So um, it just means that we're able to maintain our water source and, and be realistically we're drought proof for the next, you know, 100 years right. until until the, somehow we stop getting water coming through our catchments. And it's, it's, a, it's a large area. It's, um, you know, I often look forward to the day there's a, there's a town water burst pipe somewhere because it often all that water comes straight to us so um it's pretty handy if someone hits a pipe or whatever and the water rushes out we we like that on the news because it all comes to us that's uh, I, I just love that in a sense there's so many things in in that quick process you talked about it's obviously very complex in that water yep. storage but i like the fact that you take stormwater runoff so yep. we know that there are all sorts of different random pollutants from street surfaces as Absolutely. In, in invariable rainfall that you get after traffic and so on so that comes down through the golf course into your wetlands from that stormwater pipe it's pumped yep. in your wetlands then you've got this natural process of treatment with the plants that are in those wetlands yep that will will treat the stormwater strip out a lot of those impurities that we don't want to see in the water then you can it's somewhat basically cleaned naturally then you're pumping it back down into underground storage natural caverns under the ground in the aquifer so we're not worrying about evaporation issues with water storage and surface you know maximum surface sizes of dams and all these sorts of things that 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 are a factor on dam storage you're not building giant tank storage although you do have some to manage to be able to pump out yep This, this is a really clever way of storing cleaning stormwater storing water and replenishing yourself and in a sense like it's the there's a there's a cool cycle of water within royal adelaide that is far from a lot of the things that we see and a lot of people i'll say bash golf courses about this is really smart and and you're in a state and a city that has to be smart 400 mil average or there even if let's let's almost let's add another half and say you're going to get 600 that's less than half of some places that we would consider pretty average on the east coast yeah absolutely yeah so this is it does and this is really special the golf courses are at the forefront of these types of things i think it's fantastic in a way of of saving a lot of water at the same time so you guys are at the forefront of this sort of stuff and i think the more that it gets out and the more clubs and, and and not just clubs, councils, other places that use water can see this technology and this science behind it. These are great things that, that you guys are using every day. And I, I think it's another key part to a Royal Adelaide and, and it's it fascinates me to no end, to yep. no end. Mate, on that, I'm going to leave us on a bit of a high and a natural high of, of getting that inside look at Royal Adelaide your journey to becoming a superintendent there. It's been fascinating talking to you, mate. It's been really insightful and certainly getting people, I know I'm excited yet again. It's been a couple of years since I was there. I'm excited to hear about it and I want to find a way to get back when we can travel to go to Adelaide and, and, and have a look and experience. And if anyone gets the opportunity to be invited by a member or the like, I don't know how you can get a chance to play, but if any anyone ever gets an opportunity to play Royal Adelaide, you've got to take it because you've just heard how special the location is, the site is, the history is, and the way that Royal Adelaide is a unique golf course. Nathan, I thank you greatly for your time and lengthy discussion about, uh, your, like I said, your story in Royal Adelaide. And, uh, mate, I wish you well in the future and I look forward to hearing more about the wonderful Royal Adelaide and, and what you can offer Australian golf. Thanks, Steve. My pleasure.
Wow. A big wow from me. That was a fantastic conversation with Superintendent Nathan Bennett from Royal Adelaide Golf Club. I just had an enthralling time diving into his story, where he's come from, how he got to Royal Adelaide, and also those details about Royal Adelaide. It just, it really paints a picture of how important a place it is, but also how much of a treasure it is. And I've been saying that about a few select places that I've come across, certainly in recent times, but Royal Adelaide is just one of those spectacular places. And if you do get the opportunity, make the most of it. Don't give it away and get out there and take in every experience you can there, every second to take it all in. I'm a huge fan of it. And you heard Nathan talk about, get over to their their social media, have a look on uh, on Instagram. They've got Royal Adelaide Golf Club Greenkeepers. I think it is. That's one of their handles for their Instagram page. Great insight into what goes on, certainly the landscape, and you get a feel for Royal Adelaide as well, if you haven't had the luxury of going there. I haven't had the luxury of playing, but I have been there, and it is quite fantastic. So thank you very much to Nathan. I really hope you as listeners enjoyed it. And look, just please, I would love for you to leave a review about this one. Really hope you enjoyed listening to it, took took something out of it. And uh, so leave a review for us. Um, always good to read messages from people, which is really nice and really exciting. So thank you, anyone who does leave messages. Send me a DM, send Nathan DM, Royal Adelaide, whatever. Um, please like, share, subscribe also to the podcast so you can stay up to date when we get these segments out. And any new segments and bits and pieces that are coming out from time to time because I do have an episode every week for you. So hopefully you enjoy it and you take it all in. Now, a quick thank you again to my partners for the podcast for the Keeper of the Greens segment of the podcast. A thank you to Australian Turf Analysis for being on board and supporting. And don't forget, guys, when you want that discount for that service, you get over to australianturfanalysis.com. Thank you, everyone. You have yourselves a wonderful week.